Lord, thank you for the light of your revelation that you have not left us in the dark, but that you have made yourself known to us most profoundly in the person of Jesus. May we see him clearly tonight and place our faith in him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. As we come to this passage tonight, and as I've been reflecting on it throughout the week, I found myself considering the common overlap between the language of sight and the language of knowledge. You know, just a moment's reflection, we, we use this language all the time, interchangeably. We talk about people being perceptive, people who have a particular understanding of something, or people as having insight, sight language. We speak of having our minds illuminated, like a light switched on in there. We say, I see, when we understand something, or at least when we pretend we understand something. And this metaphorical use of sight language has even been formally enshrined in our historical record. What is the era of greatest collective advancement in human knowledge known as? The Enlightenment. Why is that? What is it about sight that invites comparisons with knowledge and with understanding? Well, I think the answer lies somewhat simply in the fact that sight is the most direct way that we gain information about the world around us. It's not the only way we get information, but it is the most immediate way. It's how we primarily build our knowledge base of the world. Just by glancing at something or someone, our eyes work together with our brain and in a microsecond we've compiled all this data about that. And so to have accurate sight is to have quick and accurate access to information, to knowledge. To see is to understand. And of course the, the opposite holds too, doesn't it? We use that language too. If you see if we can't see properly for some reason, then we struggle to quickly and accurately gain the information we need. It's why we speak of those who have had knowledge withheld from them as those who have been kept in the dark. And it's why we talk about those who act out of ignorance or a lack of understanding as acting blindly. The very language of John 9. And the subject of blindness, both literal and metaphorical, physical and spiritual, is central to the passage before us. And the fundamental drawback, if we could put it that way, of blindness as an ailment is the inability of the person afflicted by it to see the world in its fullness. An inability to see the world how it really is. And there is a sense in which someone permanently blind from birth never gets the opportunity to see the world as it really is. That's just not part of their experience. And so it's no surprise that when Jesus speaks of the relationship of sinful humans to our Creator, He, he uses this language of blindness, spiritual blindness, our collective inborn spiritual inability to see the world for how it really is and to see our Creator God for how He really is. John chapter 9 is the account of another of Jesus' signs, the, the sixth one that John records in his Gospel. It starts with another healing, this time of a man 
blind from birth. And that itself is dramatic enough. That a man born blind can have his sight restored. But what follows is arguably even more dramatic. As the hostility of the Pharisees towards Jesus' miraculous sign reveals a spiritual blindness of catastrophic severity. And as readers, as readers of this today, in that hostility of the Pharisees, we are compelled to confront our own spiritual stance, our own attitude towards Jesus, and the sobering reality of our own spiritual blindness. So let's have a look, first of all, at the healing itself. And in a a sense, the the details of the healing itself are quite straightforward. At the end of an extended visit to Jerusalem, Jesus and and his disciples happen upon this man, this blind man. And being a blind person in the first century was to be among the most pitiable in society. You couldn't work. There was no braille. There was no national disability insurance scheme to support you. You couldn't quickly and safely get around. There were no guide dogs. There were no nicely paved footpaths. Many years ago, I was at church with a girl who was blind, Gabby. She simply was not held back by her blindness. She was studying at university. She held down a part-time job. She used to do the Bible reading, just like James and just like Katie did tonight, at church, from a Braille manuscript And I would watch her fingers fly across the manuscript and she would speak at the same pace as someone reading with their eyes the printed word on the page. Incredible. Incredible. And apart from getting driven to church by her dad and the odd guiding hand here and there, Gabby was pretty much self-sufficient. She led, and as far as I know, continues to leave a full life. Not so this man. That is not the world that this man inhabits. We're told Jesus and his disciples see this man as they're passing along, which suggests that this man is sitting beside the the road begging, which was pretty much all a blind person in the ancient world could do. Begging for anything. A bit of money, a scrap of food, the tiniest bit of pity. How low on society's rung does that place you? Not only that, we're told this man has been blind from birth. What must, that have, what must that have been like? In the movie Scent of a Woman, I'm not sure if you've seen it, Al Pacino plays this retired army colonel who has lost his sight some years earlier in an accident and he's bitter about it. And when urged by another character not to dwell on the accident and instead to get on with his life, in this emotionally charged response, he yells back, What life? I got no life. I'm in the dark here. You understand? And of course he is in the dark. And you feel the pain of that character in that moment. But for all his pain and frustration, the colonel at least has the memory of what the world looked like, of what people looked like, what things looked like. Not this man. However long he has existed, however long he has lived, he has been wholly in the dark. And consistent with common Jewish belief at the time, the disciples asked Jesus whose sin is responsible for this man's condition, his own or his parents? And Jesus replies, neither. 
Now, Jesus isn't saying there's no truth to the disciples' query. As we reflected on a couple of weeks ago when looking at the paralyzed man, suffering is a result of sin. It is a consequence of living in a broken world, a world cursed by sin. But not necessarily the result of personal sin. That is not a principle we can simply apply universally. Certainly not in this man's case. Jesus makes that clear. Instead, Jesus declares in verse 3, almost in conscious contradiction to that notion, that the reason this man's blindness has come about is so that God's works might be displayed in him. So that God's works might be displayed in him. And then what does Jesus do? He goes to work, restoring the man's sight. Previously, in the two previous healings recorded, all Jesus has done is spoken and the healing has taken place. But here, he gets his hands dirty, he spits on the ground, he makes some mud. He goes to work, he rubs it on the man's eyes and then he says to the man, go and wash. And the man goes and he washes and just like that, he can see. No longer in the dark. Light has for the first time flooded into his world, completely and forever changing it. And that's the healing. That is the the core event of this passage. Once again, Jesus has uniquely changed someone's life. And in that sense, understanding the immediate significance of this sign is fairly straightforward. We're reminded of Jesus' great compassion for people in need. And we're reminded of Jesus' immense power. Jesus is divinely powerful, doing only what the Creator God can do. We also learn that on the one hand, a person's suffering is not always the result of personal sin, either on the part of the sufferer or someone else. In fact, it may rarely be the case. And yet on the other hand, we learn that God can use suffering in our lives to display His works and to glorify His name. These are truths that arise from this incident, and we would, you know, we'd do well to dwell on those truths. But arguably the most pointed truths arise from what happened on either side of the healing itself. Immediately before He acts, Jesus declares in verse 5 that He is the light of the world. And then he proceeds to demonstrate that by literally bringing light to someone for the first time. And then after the incident, the Pharisees examine the healing in forensic detail. But ultimately, they remain unseen. They remain blind to the evidence that is right before their eyes. And so this sign is, this sign is an acted parable, a representation that points beyond itself to a greater spiritual truth that all people are afflicted by spiritual blindness and that it's only when God reveals himself that we are able to see the world, ourselves, and God himself clearly, accurately, properly. And Jesus is saying that this is his God-given role, that it's only in the light of who he is and what he has come to do that we can properly and clearly see God and properly respond to Him. Without that illumination, we remain spiritually in the dark. But what does that look like? What does spiritual blindness look like? 
Because unlike physical blindness, the symptoms of spiritual blindness do not present themselves so obviously, do they? And because they do not present themselves so obviously, it's possible to suffer spiritual blindness and not not be aware of it. My wife, Emily, she has less than optimal eyesight. She wears glasses, and when she takes those glasses off, she is instantly reminded of that. She is acutely aware of her lack of vision. Instantly from just removing her glasses, let alone someone who is fully blind. They are under no illusions that they can make out the world around them, that they can make out the world in in its fullness. But as this passage reveals, spiritual blindness is an altogether more subtle affliction. The Pharisees are convinced that they see God correctly, and so they are convinced that they see Jesus correctly too. And their blindness, it manifests itself not not in total ignorance of all things spiritual, That is a way that spiritual blindness manifests itself. I think that is a way that it manifests itself largely in the contemporary Western world. A complete ignorance of all things spiritual. But not in the Pharisees' case. Here it manifests itself in a narrow misunderstanding of spiritual realities, which leads to a refusal to accept anything that doesn't fit that understanding. That's plain enough, isn't it, from what follows the healing. The Pharisees effectively set up a court where they investigate and interrogate everyone involved in this incident, the man himself, the neighbours who knew him, his parents even get dragged into it, trying to get to the bottom of this healing. And at every turn, the evidence screams that this is an act of God by a man who has come from God and who speaks for God. So transparent is this fact that the Pharisees either acknowledge it themselves such as in verse 16, when some of them say, how can a sinful man perform such signs? Or they have it pointed out to them, such as the man's final response in verse 33. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. The logic is just foolproof. And yet they refuse to accept this. Why is that? Why have they so misunderstood God's revelation? How has their blindness towards God become so severe? I think a key insight comes from the Pharisees' main grievance with Jesus, his apparent disregard for the Sabbath. It becomes a a fixation for them, much like it did in chapter 5 with the healing of the blind man. And we read in 9.14, The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. So again, the Pharisees asked him how he received his sight. He put mud in my eyes, he told them. I washed and I can see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, Ah, this man is not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Gotcha, the Sabbath. That's it. That's what tells us that you are not a man from God. And in verse 28, in responding to the healed man, they draw this sharp distinction They say, you, you're that man's disciple, but we, we're Moses' disciples. In their minds, Jesus and Moses, that great patriarch, are utterly incompatible. Why? Because Jesus acted in a way they understood to be completely contrary to the the sacred Sabbath teaching of Moses. One through whom everyone agreed God had definitively spoken. So had Jesus done this? 
had he not kept the Sabbath and so showed himself to be fundamentally in opposition to Moses and so fundamentally in opposition to God? No, of course not. Yes, he had broken one of the 38 prohibitions to Sabbath work, but those prohibitions were thoroughly man-made, rules built up over generations with no basis in inspired scripture, such as in chapter 5, carrying your mat, or in chapter 9, making mud. None of that's in the Old Testament. By contrast, the prohibition not to work on the Sabbath was deliberately general and fundamentally existed to provide an opportunity for the Jewish people to reflect on and to celebrate the creating and saving work of God. How could saving someone from blindness be inconsistent with that? Isn't that just what the creating, saving God would do? How could the Pharisees not see that? Why had they allowed these rules to build up and obscure the Sabbath's true meaning? Because, here's the pointy end, because it was convenient for them. It gave them order and structure, a framework within which they could exercise power and a way they could they could be self-righteous before God and before others. And that framework was under threat. You may rem- remember back in 2006, the film An Inconvenient Truth coming out. It was a documentary about global warming. And that title, An Inconvenient Truth, it's a clever form of words because it signals to us that there are different types of truth or that we feel differently about different types of truth. There are some truths that have unwelcome implications for us if we accept them. They're inconvenient. And that means there are some truths we tend to resist. We don't want them to be true. And that's what we see the Pharisees doing here with the Sabbath and with the challenge Jesus poses to their interpretation of it. Jesus presents to the Pharisees thoroughly inconvenient truths about God that God cares more about relating to people in love and with compassion than he does about congratulating them for their morally and religiously excellent living. That to deal with human sin, God would need to take on flesh and bear human sinfulness himself. That he was doing just that in the person before them, in the person of Jesus they so couldn't get on board with inconvenient truths, and not just inconvenient truths about God, but about themselves, that they would rather have the right ritual before God than the right relationship with God, that maybe they've got the scriptures wrong for all their training and expertise, and that maybe, just maybe, they aren't the sort of people God wants in his kingdom, self-made, highly regarded by others, morally self-righteous, learned leaders. Is it possible that God is interested in people not like that? Accepting such truths would mean dramatic inconvenience, upending their whole sense of identity and the whole way of life that went with that. No more feeling good for all their scriptural knowledge, for their faithful adherence to the law, actually submitting to God in their hearts. That is not just a rule you can tick off and say, done. 
It's actually more demanding. And inconceivably doing that by following this apparent nobody called Jesus. What do they say about him in verse 38? We don't even know where he's from. If they only knew. Ultimately, spiritual blindness is driven by a desire to have things our way. To not have to be challenged to move beyond what's convenient for us. What works for us. We see what we want to see. And we don't see what we don't want to see. And so the Pharisees see Jesus performing these obvious works of God and they, they close their eyes. They choose not to see. They choose to remain in their blindness. And the most risable thing about this is that they are supposed to know the truth. They are Israel's leaders. They are the experts in spiritual truth. And what do we see them doing here? Instead, actively suppressing the truth. Actively. In the end, they prove themselves to be nothing but blind guides. What hope do the Jewish people have if this is their leadership? And this sad reality is driven home in their final act. The fear that the parents held is realized as their son is cast out of the synagogue into religious and community exile. And the tragedy for the Pharisees of holding fast to this position is that they stand already judged, as Jesus' words in the final verses of the account remind us. A judgment they entirely bring upon themselves. Not only are they wrong, but they have constructed a system within which they will never see that they're wrong. I find that a particularly pointed challenge. Have you got such a system going? Have you set up little belief structures that support a particular convenient view of God or that justify a particular way that you want to live? When you read God's word, how do you respond when it challenges the way you think and the way that you live? Humbly, with an open heart and mind, ready to learn, willing, if need be, to change? Or do you find yourself saying, it couldn't possibly mean that? God couldn't possibly be asking me to do that, to give up this. I could never believe in a God like that. John 9 contains sobering stuff for all people to consider. The danger of spiritual blindness, how subtle it is, how devastating it is. But John 9 also contains hope, great hope, doesn't it? The hope and promise of spiritual sight, portrayed so wonderfully in the transformation of the man born blind. When the dust settles, the man is able to see for the first time, not just the world around him, but the God who made him. Aware of his need, profoundly aware and attuned to the work of God, he is able to see Jesus crystal clear in a way that the Pharisees are thoroughly unable to. And what's the result? Illumination. Illumination of his heart and of his mind. He captures it so beautifully, doesn't he, when he says, this I know. I once was blind, but now I can see.
captured so wonderfully in the great hymn, Amazing Grace. That is the grace of God at work, bringing sight to the blind. And we see his illumination progress and develop throughout the account, from knowing Jesus' name, but little more than that, to having the boldness to say in confrontation with the Pharisees that he is a prophet, that he is from God, and then eventually to believing in him. And not just giving intellectual assent to the reality that Jesus is the Messiah. Belief in John is never that one-dimensional. But wholehearted, costly, life-changing devotion. What is his final act that's recorded? He worships Jesus. He worships him. Is that how you see Jesus? As he is presented to you in John's Gospel. As he is revealed to you in the whole Bible that points to him. Have you responded to Jesus that way, the way of the man? You have him here before you, just like the man and the Pharisees did. We've been going through John's Gospel for, what, eight weeks now? You have Jesus before you. You have every opportunity to see him clearly. But you have even more than that. You have even more than what these people had at this point in time. You have the fulfillment of Jesus' journey, of his light-bringing mission, the cross, his death for all the world's darkness, for your darkness, for my darkness. And you have the glorious light of his resurrection. You know how this all ends. The message of John 9, indeed of the whole New Testament, is that only by looking to Jesus over and over again can we be quite sure that we are seeing correctly. That we're standing, as it were, alongside the man born blind with his newfound faith and his openness to God's light. Because what is the alternative to that? The alternative is to stand beside the Pharisees, certain of their rightness, but locked and bolted into a darkness all of their own devising. Don't let that be you. Look to Jesus. Walk in his light and gain life. Life as God intends you to have it here, now, and into eternity. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the light of the gospel. We thank you for Jesus bringing your light into the world world, and that in him is the light of men and women. We thank you for those of us here who have responded to that light and who worship Jesus. May you keep us uh, ever following him those in this room maybe for whom that's still a question mark, pray that you may uh, help them to see Jesus even more clearly. We pray this in his name. Amen.